Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to this week's episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. This week, we're going to talk about a few topics that I have lined up. First, we're going to start with something that Apple released called Rapid Security Response Updates. And these went out a few weeks ago for iOS, Pad OS 16.4.1, as well as Mac OS 13.3.1. And this is something new where Apple is doing these mid-cycle quick updates and they said it is for security improvements between their major software updates so like between like the 16.4.2 update there's this mid-cycle update instead of pooling all of the quote-unquote security vulnerabilities that might be out there they're providing a channel that they can quickly patch these things and get them out uh, so that people aren't exploiting them and so according to Apple they said they're bringing improvements to Safari web browser, the WebKit framework stack, and other critical system libraries. And these updates may be used to mitigate some security issues more quickly, such as issues that might be exploited or reported to exist in the wild. And the way that you can tell that it's different is that it's actually going to have a letter at the end of the software version or the OS version. So for this one, it is 16.4.1. 1A for iOS and 13.3.1A for Mac OS. And I think this is a good thing. So at least Apple is taking this seriously. They're providing a channel in order to quickly update iOS devices. I often say if you're an administrator for mobile device management, you should have minimum software versions or operating system versions as part of your compliance for those devices. You need to keep up on all the operating systems that you're managing, Windows, iOS, Android, and Mac OS, and have versions. And as soon as something comes out, you should prompt your users to update as quickly as possible. Agreed. And as someone who ran that part of IT in the past, it was something where I didn't have the leadership buy-in to enforce that as strictly as I wish I could have. And it's been interesting working for Microsoft, like Andy and I both do, and we're able to enroll our personal macOS devices, our personal iOS devices, or iPadOS devices. And Microsoft runs an extremely tight tight ship on version numbers that are allowed to be compliant devices and therefore allowed to access enterprise services. And I have gotten many emails from uh, Microsoft IT saying, hey, you need to update your Mac. Hey, you need to update your iPhone. Because for the most part, I'm kind of to the point where if I know about it and I'm like really aware, then yes, I'll do a manual update. But sometimes you get busy, it slips past you. And I get the kind of nasty gram saying, hey, you need to patch (laughs) soon within like the next two weeks, we're going to kick you out of access to corporate resources, which is a really, really effective carrot and stick to incend that behavior. And we've talked on this show how Apple has like quality testing and quality gating they follow when they release a new operating system version until they push it out to everyone, like till people's devices get it overnight. Because you know, there's a slider you can choose that says enable automatic updates on your iPhone as an example. That doesn't mean you get it day one or day two. It means when Apple feels like a certain threshold has been hit that validates the quality of that release, then they start pushing it out 
more broadly, much similar to how Microsoft runs feature updates for Windows operating system as well, where feature updates go out more and more over time. They have kind of a ramped release. And usually there's an announcement four or five months after the feature update comes out that says, hey, this is now broadly available. We're offering it to any Windows PC that checks for updates now. Anyhow, all that's to say, what's interesting about these, I've noticed a couple of things about this behavior. Number one, Apple seems to prompt you or just automatically install these much more quickly. Whereas with a general software update, again, I've noticed a lag more than one week, more than two weeks sometimes before they force push that install with the automatic update checkbox. Almost all my devices were offered and took this update much faster within a couple of days of its release. So that's a positive thing. I'd say rapid maybe is a bit of a misnomer in terms of the user experience. For the most part, this installs exactly like a software update. So it doesn't feel a whole lot different from a user perspective, although I will acknowledge the device reboots much faster from these. When you hit like install now and it says, okay, I'm rebooting your iPhone, it comes up almost like a normal just reboot as opposed to like a software update. Normally your device is kind of offline for five, 10, 15 minutes. You don't get that experience with these. So they are more rapid in that sense, but it still feels like a software update to a layman. However, what I'm sure where a lot of this comes in is this is more like Apple having to do less regression testing and less overall testing to release this. They can test it much more quickly because it's such a focused release. It's not a whole operating system. It's updating a couple of libraries. I I think they called out as an example. And then one last thought on this that's interesting is this is why Microsoft made the decision to decouple the Edge browser from the operating system release cycle. So the previous version of Edge that shipped with Windows 10 initially for its whole life only took software updates when Windows received an update. And so that's a very limited cadence on when you can update your browser, when it can get new features, and also ties that release schedule to a much more complex release schedule. Since then, Microsoft has now released a Edge browser that is built on the Chromium open source project, and its updates are decoupled from the operating system. It takes updates on its own cadence. Safari still has that problem where its updates are tied, for the most part, with some exceptions, to the operating system. Less so on macOS, where Safari can update kind of independently on the Mac, but on iOS, for sure, Safari only gets updates when the operating system on the device gets an update. And so that's something maybe to watch for in the future now that Apple is dabbling with this, is maybe moving to a model kind of like the inbox apps on Windows, where the app ship in box with the OS, but then they can update independently through the Microsoft Store. I wonder if we'll see something like that, where maybe Apple can start updating the inbox apps through the App Store, like every other app. Wouldn't it be interesting if Safari got decoupled from the OS and could take updates more quickly? I wonder if this is a little bit of foreshadowing for that. But from a security perspective, I mean, hey, this is good news all around. Like, no complaints here. Anything that makes security updates faster to ship, faster to deploy, faster to install, those are all wins. And Apple has knocked all of them out of the park. So I'd say good stuff across the board here. The only thing I will say is just if you have any expectation of like, this is going to be a snap of your fingers, it's still a reboot, but a much faster one. Really good insight. The decoupling of Safari from 
the operating system. Well, it's just stood out to me, them calling out how they're going to use these to update Safari. And it's like, oh yeah, that's right. Safari still is updated only on the cadence with the operating system on iOS. And that's kind of problematic at this point because browsers just need to take updates so quickly. And it's essentially the only holdout left because even on the Mac, uh, you do software updates on the Mac, you get Safari listed as a separate line item. You can get a Safari update that's independent from an operating system update. And then the other thing that occurred to me, and this is just random, is the version numbers because the iOS version numbers are bigger than the macOS version numbers. And of course, there's a reason for that. It's because for the longest time, Apple shipped all their macOS updates as 10 dot whatever. 10.5 was Leopard. 10.6 was Snow Leopard. 10.7 was Lion. 10.8 was Mountain Lion. And I can't believe I can do that off the top of my head, but you know, there's a lot of empty knowledge in there apparently. <laughs> but the point is, even though it's behind version number wise, obviously macOS predates iOS by six or seven years and uh, was the foundation for it. So that's a perfect example of why version numbers are completely bogus and don't mean anything. They're completely made up. You do whatever you want. Actually, one other funny versioning was Windows NT. The first version of Windows NT was 3.1. And the reason why was they wanted to align the Windows NT versioning with the Windows consumer versioning. So when NT came out, Windows 3.1 was current for consumers. So when they released this first enterprise release of Windows NT, they aligned the version numbers. So the first release of Windows NT was 3.1. Speaking of random version number history. The other thing before we move on is that this is enabled by default. So if you don't do anything, you don't take any action, this will install for you. So that's probably the behavior you want, unless for some reason you don't want this. And hey, let's call out one last thing here, because any Android fans listening to the show would crush us if we didn't. Android did it first. Okay, there you go, guys. Take your victory lap, take your glory. Android decoupled security updates from the OS years ago, although I would argue that was out of necessity more than it was being a brilliant idea, because they couldn't get OEMs to ship actual OS updates. So, you know, you guys may not want to get all excited about that because it was kind of a crappy reason to come into existence. Although ultimately it was, of course, a win that Android has security updates independently of OS updates. So yes, Android did it first. I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, Adam, on our notes. I'm going to jump to our next topic, which is data encryption. All right, let's talk about it. The reason why I wanted to mention this is because we may not have talked about this for a really long time, but I came across an article this week that showed me a way to encrypt individual folders in Windows. And for some reason, I guess I never really knew this existed, although, Adam, you informed me during our pre-show <laughs> that this has been around for a long time. So let's just talk about data encryption and some ways to encrypt data and protect it. So on Windows, you obviously have BitLocker, which is your full disk encryption that ships by default now. There's an enterprise version where you can escrow the keys. There's the aging MBAM, which is still around, which is the BitLocker administration, uh, which is more an on-prem solution. And then the modern way to do it is you can escrow those keys within your Azure AD account. You can actually even escrow your BitLocker like for your consumer Windows machines within your MSA. So I can look up my BitLocker keys within my Outlook 
bitlook.com account and recover that if needed. There's also something called BitLocker Go, which is more for like USBs. Just remember that for BitLocker Go, you have to copy the private key somewhere and save that. And it doesn't allow you to save it on the device that you're encrypting. It also doesn't allow you to save it onto the machine that you have it attached to. So it's kind of a pain. You have to save it to like a separate USB or print it out on actual paper. So... <laughs> It's one way to go. Or you can copy the key and put it somewhere in like a password vault. But when you do it, it doesn't recognize that you've copied the key and put it in a password vault. So you still have to like do one of the things that the operating system, how BitLocker Co was designed years ago and how it actually has to move on says that, hey, you saved the key. So, and then of course this individual folders, which apparently you can just go into properties of a folder under advanced and you can encrypt that folder. And once the folder is encrypted, it has to be accessed and unlocked with the user who initially encrypted it. So that user has to be logged in and then that key can be used to unlock the folders. In this article, it actually talked about how you needed to export the private key as well because apparently if something happens to your account, that data can be lost. So you do need to be careful about that. I recall Swift on Security did a whole tweet storm about this in one of those very random classic Swift on Security tangents, if you will, talking about this. So I did tell Andy in the pre-show that I remembered poking through the Windows 2000 settings, and I think I stumbled across this. I believe this kind of relates to a lot of that like encrypting file system, the EFS stuff from, I think it was literally Windows 2000 um, is where this debuted, but it's hung around. And as Paul Throt half jokingly, half seriously says on Windows Weekly, oftentimes, this is where Windows does almost resemble an archaeological dig where you get in strata of different kind of time periods and different UIs that were added to the operating system. And I believe this is one of those kind of vestiges that's been around for a long time because probably some enterprise somewhere still needs it. And, you know, that's one of the cool things about Windows really is that it has been able to carry so much compatibility forward and run on such a variety of hardware. So, you know, it's sometimes used as a knock, but I mean, ultimately, and again, I know who signs my page checks, but still, it's still an impressive feat of computer engineering that something can run on so many different types of hardware and so many different scenarios and carry so much legacy compatibility forward and that the thing works at all and actually works pretty darn well nowadays. I mean, Windows 11 is a great OS. Um, it's kind of amazing. So yeah, it's been around for a while, still works and still is an option in some scenarios. On the Mac, native encryption is called FileVault and that's not turned on by default these days. So you you do have to go in and enable that and you can escrow the key within your iCloud or you can print it off or do all sorts of offline methods to save that key as well. And if you're like an enterprise and you want to manage FileVault, there are solutions that can do that. I know that Jamf can for sure. Don't know if Intune off the top of my head can actually escrow those keys. They made me do like a manual escrow back in the day. Like I had to copy it somewhere to prove that I had it. So maybe it didn't have it at the time, but this was a couple OS versions ago. And so maybe that's now possible. There's maybe an MDM API or something. Yeah. It is worth noting that FileVault, even if it may not be enabled by default, is hardware accelerated on all modern Mac hardware and has been for many years. Even going back to some of the late model Intel Mac devices, they had a coprocessor often called like the T2 that did all of the disk encryption and handled that on the fly and it was hardware accelerated. And that is of course all baked into the M series Apple Silicon they ship now. 
now. So if you do turn that on, it's completely hardware accelerated. You should see absolutely zero performance hit because Apple has been doing whole disk encryption going back to the iPhone 3GS. And every iPhone ship since then had disk encryption by default. And what's interesting is if you're trying to manage this with MDM, like a configuration profile and managing it as an enterprise, the behavior is that if you're using full disk encryption like File Vault, and this is the same behavior for Linux because Mac is Unix based. So there's a lot of similar user experiences. You have to enter in the decryption key password when you first boot up the machine. That disk has to be unlocked. Now, by default, Apple syncs the decryption key with the local user administrator password. So when you change your password, that changes the keychain and syncs the full disk encryption file vault key with the password and it does it all on the fly, which is sometimes the behavior of like when if you're doing this, like binding Max to Active Directory, which you shouldn't do and you're trying to manage those users, you can get those keys out of sync. Like something like Jamf Connect can do that all on the fly as well and use like a Azure Active Directory user or you know like an Okta or something like that, a modern IDP with an identity there and then sync all those passwords together so that the unlock password when you boot up, you still have to enter in the password and then you can enter in your IDP username and password. Yeah, that's a really good call out because if you have a Mac with File Vault enabled, you may notice that when it first boots up, it kind of boots up to this this kind of weird looking login window that's different from the normal login window once the OS is fully running. And that's exactly what that is, Andy, is you're unlocking the disk to proceed further. And it's seamless. You know, it, it keeps those passwords in sync, of course, unless you do something to break that. And that's a really good call that Jamf does a good job of synchronizing those passwords as well. So even if you're using, like you said, a modern IDP identity and you have password rotation required for that, it will still maintain that and keep it in synchronization. So the user experience is I boot up my Mac, I type in my password. It's exactly the same as my modern IDP password as well. So very slick, very seamless and a good user experience in that sense. But every now and then you can kind of see the rough edges with that approach where, you know, when they first boot, like nothing's running yet, you know, until you log in. And it's that weird experience of going between the two login windows. So usually not a big deal, but good call out. Yeah. And and Linux is very similar. It has a full disk encryption, depending on what version of Linux you're using. Usually those are done when you're doing the out of box experience or standing up the operating system from scratch. And then my other favorite way of protecting data is actually using like a third party. And there's many of them, but the one that I've used throughout my time, and this is more on a personal level rather than enterprise is Veracrypt. It runs on all operating systems. You can encrypt a container or you can encrypt individual files as well but mostly a container is the way to go you can specify the size of the container and then you just fill it up so it's essentially like a basket that you can just toss stuff in there it's unlocked with a key like i have a 10 gig container that i use and that can sit locally or you can upload it to like a OneDrive or Google Drive or whatever. Just know that you have to keep it downloaded and synced locally in order to unlock it. Like Google Drive and OneDrive are not going to be able to unlock 
locker for you. And there's another way, actually, that just came to me, is there's a personal vault now within OneDrive. So that is in the personal versions, consumer version of OneDrive. There's something called Personal Vault, which encrypts it as well. And you have to unlock it using your MSA. And that's another way that you could do it if you wanted a more native experience, because those will work within the apps, like say on iOS or Android or other operating systems. Mm -hmm. Personal Vault's cool. Check it out. Okay. So the final topic I wanted to talk about is, you know, we had a conversation a few weeks back about the tech layoffs and they're still happening. And what we really didn't talk about is the cybersecurity aspect of it. And it's been a few months since we talked about the Microsoft Insider Risk Report. And if you haven't heard that one, that's a really good episode to go back and listen to. But the main thing to understand is that layoffs can be dangerous for cybersecurity programs. It's a very emotional time when an employee gets laid off. If it's not done with empathy, if the company hasn't provided any transition resources or or severance, you know, that employee can become dissatisfied. And once they do, every application, service, data that that employee has access to will have to be resecured in case that employee decides to take some revenge on the organization. And I think identifying that access can be difficult because inventory is not something that a lot of enterprises are strong in. Physical inventory of devices, inventory of applications that you have access to, and especially like third-party SaaS apps if they're not federated with an identity provider, then you have to manually go in there with another administrator to remove access. And what if that person is the administrator for that SaaS app that's not federated, right? And by federated, we mean, you know, like with Azure AD or Okta or Ping, where you can turn off that identity and then all of a sudden they lose access to all of those other applications. And if it's not federated, then it means it has its own login, which if it's cloud, they can access from anywhere, right? And you can't add a condition access or something like that. So very difficult to identify access and physical assets that aren't managed. If they happen to have those, then that can be difficult as well. I have been at companies where Macs in particular have been unmanaged because a lot of companies, they just don't manage Macs. It's kind of the wild west. And then the employee has a local administrator that only they know the password to, and they enable file vault on that machine. And then they get fired or they leave. And now you can't access the data on that Mac because only they know the password to it. It's a local administrator. So there can be some consequences to this and it all has to be thought through. Like how do you get back those assets if the user is remote? Some companies write them off as a business expense. Hopefully you know what data is on those and you know, or maybe you can kick off an MDM reset or something like that before they are laid off. I've been at companies where they've requested the asset to be returned and the employee refuses. They just flat out don't bring it in or don't mail it in and you have to decide whether or not you're going to take legal action like can you send you know police which you can't like it's not something they're going to respond to to somebody's home to like recover a corporate asset right Go kick down the door and take back our <laughs> thinkpad yeah, I've had people suggest that before. And I'm like, no, we can't do that. But are you prepared to take legal action? Like you could possibly, you know, maybe take them to small claims court or something like that. You know, when they do come in, are you wiping them? Are you physically inspecting them? I read this article and it said that there have been, you know, this is probably a very small percentage, but there have been devices that have been tampered with and returned with pen testing battery powered microcomputers that can mine for data or search the network for vulnerabilities. I mean, 
maybe that's a possibility but definitely i would inspect those physical devices when they come back in and then physical access to buildings is often overlooked right so make sure that they can't just come back in if they're an it admin and you still have like a server room or something like that if they know how to get back and have physical access to the servers that could be a bad thing as well so yeah i think just taking a moment and connecting with hr because obviously hr is making the decision to you know let these people go or the managers or the leadership and just provide them with a risk profile of how this could be dangerous for the cybersecurity programs that you have yeah and then finally i wanted to talk about intent because i think as people as employees we often have this notion that we assume good intent but that might not be the best for cyber risk. We want to believe that people are going to do the right thing and that they're good stewards of the company. But, you know, sometimes they're not. But I also think that you shouldn't assume every employee is a malicious employee out to do harm. And I've also encountered that before. Mainly, I have this experience as a police officer where I feel like their attitude can become tainted because every call that they go on is a bad person doing a bad thing. And you just assume that you're going and responding to something bad. That attitude can sometimes happen in cybersecurity where you have an incident and involve someone and you just assume that they're doing something bad. But I urge you to try to treat every incident objectively until you get all the facts. And anytime you're dealing with this sort of stuff, make sure that you're looping in HR. Like the cybersecurity person should be the person gathering the facts and presenting the case and letting HR in this case make the decision right it's very much like the police which if you don't know they don't have the ability to charge anybody they just refer charges so they gather the evidence they write up their report and they provide it to the district attorney and the district attorney is the one who actually files charges formally against that person and so in this case use it like HR right? So make sure that you're objective when you're coming up to these incidents. You don't want to assume good intent, I don't think, but you also don't want to assume bad intent. You just want to be neutral, take a look at everything objectively and go with the facts. We've spoken on this show several times about the risk of dissatisfied employees. We've talked about it in the context of, and I'm blanking on the attack group name, but there was that prolific attack group, the one that got into Okta, and I think Microsoft a little bit too, although they didn't get very far. And they were famous about running, I believe it was Telegram channel, where they recruited insiders and bribed them to either respond to an MFA request or to maybe let them in, you know, through a like a virtual backdoor kind of thing. And we talked about at the time how treating your employees well and making sure that they are compensated fairly, that they are treated fairly, that they're in a healthy space mentally actually helped improve your security posture. And this is now the worst possible scenario in terms of building that trust and that respect and that rapport is when you change their life for the negative by stopping their employment with you. That is the worst scenario. And so it introduces risk, period. It does. Absolutely. And I agree with how you handled it, Andy, in terms of being balanced of saying the risk is not zero, but the risk is not 100. And I think one thing, another thing we've talked about on the show a lot is encouraging our listeners to get better at establishing probabilities and behaving based on probabilities, because it is just as ineffective to assume everyone is a risk as it is to assume everyone. 
everyone is no risk. And there are also, whenever you put like mitigations in or you put controls in, remember that there is a downside to a lot of them. There are human impacts to them. We've talked on this show about, to use an example, passwords and some of password policy and why things in a vacuum sound like a great idea don't really work out because humans don't behave that way. Like the concept that if I have four character sets, uppercase, lowercase, numeric symbols, that that gives me more possible options in each password position and creates more complex passwords. But in reality, humans do not choose truly random passwords. And so you're not actually getting that benefit of having, you know, 60, 70 different character options in each position. That's not reality. In fact, it's probably predictable sometimes now with complexity requirements, I can guess closer to 10 possibilities or five. If I'm pretty sure there's a symbol here, there's only about three or four or five symbols that people are going to use. They're going to use the ones that are easy to get to as an example on the keyboard. And my point of that analogy is to go back to if you start treating everyone like they're a big risk, then you may actually introduce more risk because people like, you know, F these guys who are treating me like a jerk. I'm going to show them, you know, what they should really be concerned about. So, you know, there are downsides to that. I think Andy, for the most part, your call outs are good. I've heard of a lot of organizations essentially writing off getting devices returned. It's like, you know, they'll ask and say you should return it. But if you don't, like they're not going to fight you over it. And I've I've heard people say like during different layoff rounds on Twitter, like keep your device like you earned it. They don't get it back. So, you know, when you have a modern kind of position in place as far as how you manage your endpoints and how your people work, you should be to the point where you don't have a lot of opportunity for there to be a lot of company data on it. We talked about operational excellence again, referencing a Swift on security tweet where they spoke to the importance of being able to recover a device quickly because there's nothing that's unique or interesting on that device itself. Everything comes down from OneDrive and comes synchronized from the cloud. And so I just sign in and boom, everything's there and back again. Those are things you can do to mitigate kind of that risk of getting devices to come back. And if somebody is terminated and, and having an insider risk program, a lot of insider risk management tools actually work hand in hand with HR information systems so that when that signal comes down of we're going to terminate this user, it actually kind of lights up and starts looking more intently at those users for any potential anomalous activity. So it can alert you to it or give you a paper trail if that's detected. And to Andy's point around your job as IT or InfoSec is not to do the equivalent of press charges, it's to gather information. One of the things I like about insider risk management tools is they're designed for that workflow. There is a workflow where it's gather information, gather data, and then you refer the case to HR. That's actually a built-in workflow on how they function. So Andy's describing the way a lot of the more formalized tools actually already work. So I thought a good conversation and it's something to be aware of. And like everything, we just went through another round of layoffs at Microsoft. It's really difficult to deal with. And so a little empathy and respect goes a long way. But at the same time, as much as we want to assume positive intent and believe all people are good, like Luke Bryan, you still need to protect the organization and you need to protect against those risks. And so I think a balanced approach, a good middle ground is always what we're looking and advocating for here. So think about that, kind of consider and maybe go over your policies as everyone is going through some sort of right sizing in their organization and aligning our business to our revenues or whatever euphemism you want to use to justify it. It's something you will probably deal with if you haven't already. And so like all things in InfoSec, the better prepared you are to handle it, the better you will 
will perform when the time comes. Great conversation tonight. That's our show for this week. Thanks as always for listening and watching. Our contact information will be in the show notes if you have any questions or topics you want us to talk about in the future. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Blue Security Podcast. Please check out the show notes, catch up on episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJawZero and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.